Good morning, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Beth, for the wonderful canting of those blessings, and for John for carrying his word, and for Miguel from, for reading from it. Thank David and Jeanette for wonderful praise and worship and liturgy. So many people do so much for this community. Uh, we are truly blessed. So before we get started this morning, let us pray for some of those that are in our community and around the world. <clears throat> Avinu, our Father, we thank you for Shabbat. We thank you for sustaining us, bringing us here in this time and place, a place that you have blessed us with, a place we love, and come together to worship you. We come before you in prayer this morning for the well-being of others that we know and love. First, we pray for those in Jerusalem, those in the land of Israel, that there be safety and deliverance and peace in the land, that you keep everyone safe and bring them healing. We pray for uh, Rob and Michelle for ministry opportunities for them, uh, ministry opportunities as well for Greg and Gloria Kenyat, that she would be in their lives and give them opportunities to spread the kingdom message. We pray for healing for many of our brothers and sisters who have um, physical um, needs. Sue Embry, Mark Vandersteg, Mike Vandermeulen, Brenda Hagen, Rebecca Garber, and others, Lord, there's others in our community that are maybe silently suffering physically or have a, um, just an emotional or spiritual struggle that they're dealing with. You know, you know who they are, Lord. We ask that you have your healing hand on their lives. You, Adonai, are the source of peace, healing, wellness, and all things good. And so we pray that you bless those who we prayed for and those that we uh, don't know about, but you know about, Lord. Finally, I pray that what I have to share with your people this morning, Lord, is something that is encouraging and helpful and something that glorifies you and your kingdom. We thank you and bless you for all things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Parashat Vayitze, 5784. This week's Parsha opens with the famous Jacob's Ladder, of course. Much symbolism and messianic invocations are drawn out in this, as we've spoken on over the many years. Um, you certainly see a connection with Yeshua being that ladder, that connection between heaven and earth, and um, just all the symbolism that gets wrapped up in that. And so, you see that establishment there of at least a positive aspect of the supernatural world having an impact on our life. We kind of addressed this a few weeks ago when we talked about Genesis chapter 6 and the negative spiritual energies that are affecting this world. We'll mow over that lawn in a little different direction today. Because we're going to talk a little bit about that spiritual aspect again about division and deception because the family relationships we've been reading about for the past several weeks 
are not without strife and hardship. Many of them, just like our own lives, right? There's deception and division in a lot of what's been going on. Abraham has been deceiving Pharaoh and Abimelech. Isaac does the same thing. Sagar, or Sarah and Hagar, that whole thing ultimately ended in division of Abraham's family. Rebecca, uh, last week, cooks up an idea to get the Abrahamic promise over to her favorite son, Jacob, and that causes more division within the family. There's alienation there. And so, we see family problems, and family problems are the worst. And it's often family that causes it, and it's family that suffers from it. We generally are uh, the source of our own irritation. But Abraham's family is in particular danger because the spiritual forces of darkness are honed in on them. Remember the Lord blessed Abraham and this week Jacob with the blessings that through them all of the earth would be blessed. We understand that, uh, that blessing ultimately to be fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua. So this puts a target on this family's back. Satan is interested in everyone's soul, of course, but how much more so the lineage of Abraham? And we see this playing out in our world today, of course. Now, Abraham cannot, or the deceiver, Satan, cannot do all the work himself. He needs cooperation from us in the form of disobedience. The, de the deceiver takes advantage of our weaker moments, and so we need to be resilient, deal with consequences, and get back on the path, right? The patriarchs, yes, they had weak moments, but disobedience, like we all do, there's time to deal with that and get back on the path. We will see that when extended disobedience without getting on the path, that's where rebellion comes in, and that's where those spiritual forces can really get a foothold in your life. Uh, this week's Torah portion contains a little more Deception, of course. I'm going to read a few verses from Genesis chapter 29, verse 16. This, of course, is where Laban pulls the old switcheroo on Jacob. On Genesis chapter 29, verse 16, it says, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob was in love with Rachel. So he said, let me serve you for seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked for Rachel seven years, yet in his eyes it was like a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are completed, so I may go to her. So Laban gathered all the men of the place, and he prepared a feast. When it was evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and he went to her. Laban also gave her Zilpah, his female servant, to his daughter Leah as a female servant. So when it was morning, behold, there she was, Leah, not Rebekah. So he said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Wasn't it 
for Rachel that I worked, and why have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not how we do it here, to give the younger before the older. So we get it. A little more deception. Maybe this is payback for um, what he had done to Esau. But this is consequence. And the way you deal with consequence is you work through it. You get back on the path. You stay faithful to the Lord. That's how you avoid rebellion and those spiritual forces getting a hold of you. That's what made the patriarchs very great. They could overcome their shortcomings, get back on the path. Now this does this very, you know, good feeling of all right, we're making it in life with the Lord, works good for the patriarchs, but as this small nomadic band of people grows into a nation, things don't go as well as Miguel read for us in this week's Haftorah. The prophet Isaiah is really letting the nation have it about their rebellion. For those that are listening online, they did not hear the readings. Those listening online, may you be blessed wherever and whenever you are listening to this. But a few verses um, that Miguel read for us this morning from the prophet Hosea, um, like all prophets, he starts out really lambasting the people for their sin, but then he ends with a message of reconciliation and hope. And so Hosea chapter 13, verse 1, Hosea gets on him. He says, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but he became guilty through Baal and died. But now they sin more and more, and they've made themselves molten images. So Hosea is really getting on the people, and he does this chapter after chapter. Really, the whole book's a series of these oracles. But of course, he ends with a message of hope. In chapter 14, verse 5, he says, I will heal their backsliding, and I will love them freely, for my anger, my anger will turn away from him, and I will be like dew for Israel. So there's hope. There's always this message of hope. But I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, I'd like to uh, refresh myself on exactly what was going on during this time. What is Hosea seeing with his eyes? And to do that, we need to turn back to the book of 1 Kings chapter 12. So if you would turn to 1 Kings chapter 12, I do not have a page number for you. I would think, you know, you got the Torah, you got... Joshua, Judges, Samuel, get you to 1 Kings. 340, I'll write this in here. Page 340 is 1 Kings chapter 12. This is about a thousand years after this week's Torah portion. So after um, the Parashat Vietze, you fast forward a thousand years, it gets you to this point in time, 1 Kings chapter 12, titled here, Rehoboam's Foolishness, and Hosea's hanging around watching all this go down. Verse 1, Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. That's Solomon's son. Now when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard about it, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from the face of King Solomon and settled in Egypt, so they summoned him. 
So Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, that's the northern kingdom. Well, what will be the northern kingdom? Jeroboam says, your father made our yoke burdensome. Now, therefore, lighten the harsh labor of your father and his heavy yoke, which he laid on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam says, well, go away for three days and then come back and see me. And what happens is, is Rehoboam consults the elders of his father, and the elders of his father say, listen, just be a nice guy, and they'll love you. Then he consults a bunch of his buddies, the guys he grew up with, and they say, just lay it on him harder. And in Rehoboam's great wisdom, he goes with the advice of his buddies, decides that he is going to lay it on them harder, and the northern kingdom, that's the tribes revolt. And they're about to go to war right off the get-go when the Lord intercedes way down farther in, well, this would be chapter 12, 22. The Lord says, you're not to go up and fight against your brothers, the children of Israel. Turn back every man to his own house, for this matter is from me. So the kingdom, finally, after centuries, has split, a very ugly split. The family is divided again. And so what happens next, I find really puzzling. Chapter 12, verse 26. But Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David if this people keep going up to offer sacrifices in the house of Adonai at Jerusalem. Then the heart of these people will turn back to their Lord, to King Rehoboam of Judah. Then they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So the king, Jeroboam, sought counsel and made two golden calves. He said to them, you have been going up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Then he set up one in Bethel. That's the same Bethel that is in Jacob's ladder in this week's Torah portion that Jacob called the house of the Lord and had that great vision. Here we have Jeroboam setting up one of the, uh, these golden calves there. So he sets up one there in Bethel and the other one he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people. Uh, now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one even up in Dan. And he also made shrines on high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not the sons of Levi. Then Jeroboam instituted a festival in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, imitating the festival that is in Judah. So he's talking about Sukkot here. So we invent Sukkot a month later than it's supposed to be. He went up to the altar that he built in Bethel to sacrifice to the calves that he had made. He installed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had made up in his own heart and made up a festival for the children of Israel and went into the altar to burn incense, went up to the altar to burn incense. Now, the actions for these people here are really hard for me to understand. I mean, I get there is a heavy yoke, Rehoboam is being a jerk. But to go from that point to accepting golden calves, not just one, but two of them, and all the other things that follow, it's hard. These are the same people that 
had oppression under Pharaoh, and they know what happened, will have oppression. This is almost like a portent. Yeah, it's the circular uh, themes are obvious. You would think they would know better after the golden calf, right, at Sinai event. It's, it's stunning. It's as if their hate has turned into a weird obsession, right, driving them to be anything other than the kingdom of Judah. They're sort of an anti-Judah. And so Jeroboam's way off the path. He's not seeking to return to it. And this allows dark spiritual forces to gain a foothold in them. Again, this, isn't, this is family division on a national level. What began earlier as family disputes has now morphed into a rebelliousness that is empowered by spiritual forces which we may not fully understand. Again, puzzling rebellion. But we're going to see more of this. The prophecy, the prophecies uh, that are given by the prophets of the Lord would continue. And there's a particular prophecy I'd like to look at now that's given about a thousand years from this time period. And that's recorded in the book of Matthew. Uh, passage we all probably know very, very well. Matthew chapter 24. Again. I do not have a page number for you. 949. 949. Or if you have a black family Bible, it's 1084. Matthew chapter 24. I'd like to, the whole chapter really is a great sign of the end times, but I'd like to focus in on one section here for the purposes of my argument. We're going to start in verse 9. I'm going to read about four verses, just this paragraph right here, and then stop. 24.9 says, Then they will hand you over to persecution and kill you. You will be hated by all the nations because of my name, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures till the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Now, there's so much packed into that that would take weeks to get through. But a few thoughts I have here. In verse 9, it says, you will be hated by all the nations. Who is the you in this part? Uh, could it be the disciples? Or is it only the Jews that believe in Yeshua? Or is it all the Jews in Israel? Because you can kind of see prophecy works in layers. The immediate context, he's talking to his disciples. Yes, they are probably going to suffer. But the end did not come. So you can see all this prophecy here is layered. From the words that are recorded here, if you read them, because um, 
he goes on in the next paragraph to talk about the abomination of desolation and um, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing that they'll have to flee Judea. Reading through here, it's clear that Yeshua expects a Jewish presence in Jerusalem even though he knows there's a pending exile coming. He knows the Romans are going to come, destroy Jerusalem, and scatter the people. So, by implication, Yeshua expects a return in some form. This is a pre-supernatural return. He return, expects a return of exiles in some form to be able to experience these end times that he's talking about. So I believe in verse 9, in a sense, he's talking to them as they are representatives of the nation of Israel. Because by implication, Yeshua understands there's about to be an exile and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. But at some point before the grand regathering in the Messianic era, there's a Jewish presence again in the land. Something really unthought of for centuries until the 1940s. That changed a lot. It's Israel versus the nations. And from, from what we've seen over the past several weeks, ever since Simcha Torah, you see this bizarre obsession, this weird hatred out in the world. The puzzling obsession that Jeroboam had when he divided the kingdom seems to be alive and well. The world has an odd obsession with Israel that I don't get. We see China, they're killing millions of the Uyghur people and throwing them into camps. It makes the news here and there. Years ago, Syria got invaded. Millions of people, tens of millions displaced, starving, lots of death. Yeah, that made the news. There are many wars and atrocities happening in um, Central African company, countries. Again, you really have to search to see that news. But when Israel gets involved in a war, protests erupt across the world, city squares, university campuses, government buildings, the UN's getting together. It's just against Israel. It's odd that there's such an obsession with this country. So why the obsession? I think verse 14 in this paragraph gives us a clue. It says, The good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to the nations. The nations will have this testimony, yet they exhibit the spirit of Jeroboam. That spirit that's anti-Israel, much in the same way Jeroboam, rejected the divine legacy of the people, the world does that same thing. And so the vindication of Israel will reach its highest glory because the nations would have heard the gospel and its leaders come against the people. The leaders, not necessarily the people within all these countries. There's a lot of people in these countries that will and do support Israel but in the eyes of the Lord, countries rise and fall because of their leadership. And we see this happening now. There's Obviously, this is birth pangs. There's still plenty of time left for even more rebellion and wickedness, much more. You know, people are pretty creative. 
just when you think it couldn't get crazier, they prove to reach even higher levels of iniquity than you can even imagine. But this is all predictive. We can all have peace and hope knowing that this only makes his return that much more glorious. We can boldly defend Israel because we know redemption is coming for the nations. Very interesting, the results, the reaction over there, I should send this out in an email to everyone. There's a few recent podcasts from Messiah Podcast where uh, Boaz and Jeremiah Michael talk about the reaction of the country, how now for the first time in decades people are going back to shul, and how soldiers who weren't religious are now asking for prayer books, and how secular restaurants are suddenly cashiering their kitchens so they can accommodate people. What used to be a very split and divided family over there because of political reasons has suddenly coalesced and come together. I think this is uh, a great surprise to the spiritual forces that are at work and a great shock to them. And I think that is something that we can look on and see uh, that gives us hope, that gives us that assurance that these promises are coming together and there is a purpose for all this. The suffering is not in vain. And as the pressure gets turned up, we can remain steady in our faithfulness because of the promises of all the prophets and Yeshua's testimony that yes, things are, will be painful, but there's always reconciliation and healing. I'll close with uh, verses 29 through 31, just a few verses down. But immediately after the trouble of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all of the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great, great glory, and he will send out his angels with a great shofar, and they will gather together his chosen from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Amen. May that be soon and in our days. Shabbat shalom. I'll close us with a word of prayer. Avino, our Father, we thank you once again for the Shabbat. We thank you for the revelation that you've given to us. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for the spirit that you've placed within us, the presence that we feel that gives us encouragement. Lord, we thank you for giving us that resilience to stay on the path, to stay with heightened spirits in this uh, dark world. We ask that the rest of our day be blessed, the rest of our Shabbat be a delight, our oneg, our fellowship, our Torah studies, that our week be blessed with prosperity, physical and spiritual prosperity. And lastly, Lord, we pray for those that are in the land of Israel that you would bring peace to the land, justice to the land, and bring healing and reconciliation to the land. Lord, we thank you and bless you for all things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.